0: To More Than Words, a podcast about treating the whole child brought to you by the Reading and Language Learning Center. I'm your host, Tristan, and today I'm joined by licensed psychologist, Dr. Carrie Heller, to discuss ADHD and anxiety. Hi, Dr. Carrie, how are you?
1: Doing well. Thanks a lot for having me. How are you doing today?
0: I'm awesome. We're excited for you to be here. And I think this is a really good topic, um, especially as we're getting started with the school year to jump into. Yeah. So let's start with an introduction. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do.
1: Sure, absolutely. So I'm a clinical psychologist. I specialize in ADHD and executive function issues. Executive functioning is kind of an umbrella term that's often used to describe a variety of skill sets in terms of planning, organizing, task initiations, getting yourself going with things, using memory skills effectively. So most skills you would think about in order to complete a task, including homework, schoolwork, most other things for any of you listening, things involved in actually getting yourself to find to find the podcast and hit the button to start it. So there's there's it's a very vital skill set. Um, but anyway but I basically help people overall to be better organized, more productive, focus better, and really to thrive in life. I do therapy and coaching, uh, formal testing to diagnose ADHD, learn disabilities and related items, and also run an executive functioning boot camp.
0: Awesome. That's fantastic. <laughs> um and where are you if people are looking to find you?
1: Sure. So so physical office is located in Bethesda, Maryland, near Montgomery Mall. Uh, I also am available in about 37 states online through oh, wow. uh, Pact.
0: That's awesome. Okay, perfect. So um, what is your website if people are looking for it?
1: Oh, sure. Uh, hellerpsychologygroup.com.
0: Perfect. And I'll put that in the show notes. People will hear it and they'll also see it and they can click the link and stuff. Perfect. thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's hop right in. Um, first things first, what's
1: ADHD? <laughs> definitely a good question. It's always good <laughs> to figure out, you know, we're going to talk about something to define it. So, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, if you want to get very technical, the DSM 5 TR, it's the manual that clinicians use to that has the criteria. It's classified in what's called a neurodevelopmental disorder. But, you know, sort of really what it is, it's a, it's a disorder that impacts self-regulation. So the ability of, you know, what, what, how well someone can, you know, basically focus their attention, their actions. So essentially, if someone needs to do something, it impacts, you know, if, if some, if someone's really interested in something, they can probably focus reasonably well on it. Right. If it's something they enjoy, but when you, are presented with something that isn't really that enjoyable, for, for people with ADHD, it's often a lot harder to focus right. and do stuff. So for example, you know, sort of a good example might be, a, a, you know, a child can sometimes sit for hours playing video games, even if they have ADHD, but if they're mm-hmm. interested in it, they're gonna keep, they maybe will do it quite well and focus. But you know, put the same child with, let's say, a math worksheet, if they really don't like math and have a hard time with it, you know, the issues of focus are probably gonna come into play there. So right. with ADHD, you have the issues with attention, and then some people with ADHD also have issues with hyperactivity, which is the idea of excessive movement. So the child that's you know bouncing their leg up and down, that's mm-hmm. fiddling with everything in sight, that just constantly has their hands and everything and can't sit still. Right. And also impulsivity. And impulsivity can be verbally in terms of you know, calling out in class, mm-hmm. um, not being able to wait their turn to say something that's on their mind. Obviously, it can also involve actions in terms of doing things without thinking, which certainly as kids get older, I mean, even at any age can, can create issues, but obviously the severity of that can definitely, you know, get worse as, a, or not the severity of the act, but, you know, basically if, you know, if you have a five-year-old does something impulsively, chances are, you know, they might get a little hurt, Worst case, but, you know, certainly when you put a, you know, someone when they're driving or something like that, that's really impulsive, that can mm-hmm. obviously create more standard issues. So it's definitely important to really address this stuff when kids are younger, if possible.
0: Right. Yeah. I, I don't think I realized the impulsivity part. Um, cause that is like something that I'm sure, um, teachers are like that disrupts my class or whatever. Um, so that's interesting to think to mention and, um, that you could, I don't know how that is like worked with, I think I've heard more about, um, like the hyperactive portion, um, of ADHD and how people like try to work through that. So that, like I said, the impulsivity is interesting to me. Um, but the other portion of what we're talking about today is anxiety. So do you mind going ahead and defining that as well?
1: So absolutely. Yeah, so anxiety is really the idea of someone being, you know nervous nervous about something. Mm-hmm. So something you know, kids and adults even can get anxious for different reasons. So especially with kids, sometimes it may be anxiety about a social situation. So when in a so- situation, socially especially with kids they don't know, they may kind of clam up. Or they may, you know, their heart may start racing, or they may, you know, feel very tense. Same thing if they have an exam. Again, anxiety impacts people differently. Um, Another common one is feeling overwhelmed when you have a lot to do. So, Mm -hmm. you know, a child comes home, they're ready for their homework, and they're so anxious because they have so much to do. And they feel like, oh, I can never get this done. Right. So there's, you know, a lot. So anxiety can really have very different triggers. And, And that's why, you know, when someone has anxiety, it doesn't always manifest in the same way. Right. Because, you know, one of the things with ADHD and anxiety, and this is sort of interesting sort of in how they because people can certainly have both is that on the one hand, for some people, anxiety ends up actually helping aspects of the ADHD and that for some people, it actually helps reduce the procrastination because if you're so anxious about getting stuff done, it it may reduce the procrastination because you want to get it done. Right. Obviously, that's not always the case. There are definitely right. lots of people with ADHD and anxiety where the anxiety worsens the ADHD symptoms, and so make it even harder to get started. Because then you're procrastinating both because you have a hard time getting started because of ADHD, but you're also anxious and feel overwhelmed. So that also leads you to procrastinate. So it does. So again, right. that's where these things really. It's not one size fits all. That the right. symptoms can really impact people differently, and sometimes the interplay between anxiety and ADHD again can also impact kids quite differently.
0: Right. So that was what I was going to ask you next was do they like often exist together? And is there a reason for that?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, it depends again, every child's, you know, can be at least somewhat different, but you know, there are certain times where if someone has ADHD at some point, there's some level of self-awareness to recognize, Oh, I have a hard time focusing or mm-hmm. I'm not good at this. And so that in itself can sometimes, you know, create anxiety because if you, you, you go into a situation, you know, you're not good at this or, or whether that's, a, you know, actual, or a good and accurate perception or not, it creates nervousness. So certainly the ADHD can over time, you know, certainly create anxiety, but anxiety can certainly be there separate from ADHD as well.
0: Right. Um, but with kids with ADHD, is the anxiety different than kids without ADHD?
1: Um. I mean, certainly there's anxiety symptoms that are present if someone has anxiety. So that in itself, would be different but again it depends there are some people with anxiety ADHD where the anxiety you know reduces the procrastination piece and -hmm. creates more of a a sense of motivation to do something there are other cases where the anxiety causes people you know can cripple kids and you know they shut down but then if you look at social situations for kids that have anxiety in social situations um you know it's different because sometimes adhd there's often this idea that they don't have a filter that right. you know, the impulsivity of just saying whatever comes to mind. But if you're right. anxious in a social situation at the same time, that might actually reduce the impulsivity in social situations. Not always, because at the same time, sometimes when people are anxious, they may actually do things more that are impulsive because they're anxious. Right. So, so again, this is where there's all these different sort of possibilities of what could happen. But you take two kids, let's say you take 10 kids that have both anxiety and ADHD. The exact symptoms are going to be somewhat different because right. it can manifest quite differently. And with the anxiety, it also depends what the triggers are you know, for example, if social anxiety is not an issue and it's more anxiety about feeling overwhelmed, then that's going to manifest differently than someone that has, you know, sort of a broader range of anxiety symptoms or triggers.
0: Right. So in terms of academics, how can anxiety and ADHD affect um, kids at school?
1: Sure. I mean, it definitely can impact them a lot. I'm sure. Um, I mean, first of all, something you mentioned earlier about the idea of you know the impulsivity and the or hyperactivity in the classroom mm-hmm. a lot of times kids that have more of either the technically hyperactive impulsive kind, or oftentimes it's more in the of the combined presentation where they have inattention symptoms and hyperactive slash impulsive ones. Those are often the kinds of kids that sort of teachers often recognize first in terms of having right. trouble because they're being disruptive in a lot of cases. Right. Whereas a child that just can't focus, well, obviously that's definitely a very big issue. A lot mm-hmm. of the times it's not as noticeable, especially when kids are a lot younger. So t- teachers don't pick up on it if the kid's not being disruptive.
0: Right.
1: Um, but in terms of how it impacts the classroom, So, I mean, ADHD itself can certainly impact a a child's ability to focus, to process and retain information. I mean, because if a child's sitting there, and let's say it's a math lesson, and they're kind of half zoned in, keep zoning in and out, they're going to miss parts. So they may not fully understand what to do, or they may think they understand it and then miss steps. and then when they're actually doing the work you know they may you know miss especially like stuff that involves a lot of steps that can be especially challenging for kids with adhd Um, and if you don't really learn stuff super well to begin with then it makes a lot harder to really retain that information long term or when it comes time to apply it you know on an exam so it can definitely impact learning a lot obviously it can impact social relationships um certainly can lead to you know, conflict with teachers if they're being disruptive, especially because one of the things that's really hard is that you don't want to use it as an excuse. But if a child mm-hmm. legitimately has a hard time controlling their behavior and, you know, they keep internalizing and say, oh, I'm bad because I keep getting in trouble, that certainly doesn't feel good for the child. Right. But it's hard, especially if you don't really understand HD. A lot of times the teacher might say, oh, you have to behave better. You have to do this. But, and well, again, you don't want to use it as an excuse. It's hard because it's not like a child is, you know, intentionally choosing to, to act out or do something that's disruptive.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, And do teachers often help identify that, like, a child has ADHD to the parents? That sounds, like, kind of confusing, but do they notice things and then they speak to the parent and they're like, hey, I'm noticing this in class?
1: I think it depends. I I mean, there are definitely teachers that, I think especially when a child, at least just anecdotally, when a teacher is, when a child's being really disruptive and it's impacting a class, a teacher's probably more likely to say something to a parent. Mm -hmm you know, and try to address it. Or, I mean, certainly if, if, a, if a teacher is seeing something that's an issue, you know, the, the hope would be that they'd mention it to the parents. Right. But, you know, I think there are definitely some kids where, you know, the teacher recognizes the issue, they bring it to the parents' attention, and the parents, you know, figure out what's going on and address it. And then maybe it's they, you know, do formal testing to figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. You know, in some cases... You know, there, you know, schools that do testing sometimes, or sometimes parents will go to a pediatrician as a starting point. Right. Um, but you know, I think one of the hard things is that, you know, there are lots of times where, you know, I see kids where, you know, the teachers have said, oh, the kids fine, or maybe they have a little issue with this, but it's not a big enough concern. But then, you know, I do testing and there's quite a bit going on, or you look kind of right. you put all the pieces together from year to year and look through the history, and there's a lot more than I think any one teacher realizes.
0: Right. So the parents, do they normally identify that before? Um, like a teacher has to come to them and ha- what do they no- no- notice um, to finally say, like, I think my kid has ADHD.
1: I mean, oftentimes it's, you know, issues with focus that, you know, my child can't stay, can't stay focused in class or, you know, I've, you know, getting these reports from school that the kid, my child can't stay focused issues with organization. So, you know, a lot of times, especially when kids are younger, the child, you know, the, um, you know, a lot of the teachers will have, you know, you have to put the homework in this folder, or you know, mm-hmm. have a organized binder in a certain way. And so a child has a hard time kind of following that system or is constantly forgetting things or, right. or has a hard time remembering to write down their homework assignment or know what the homework is. Or even using an online portal to keep track of assignments to getting yeah. assignments turned in late. Those are definitely some of the red flags I see quite a bit, you know, when a parent sort of comes for an evaluation, you know, for their child for ADHD.
0: And for anxiety or um, what do parents like normally see?
1: Um, I mean, again, it, it it can be, it certainly is different, but depending on the trigger of the anxiety, but you know, a lot of times it's feeling overwhelmed very easily. The idea that, Mm -hmm. you know, little things just, you know, being, having to transition one thing to the next can cause a lot of anxiety or feeling overwhelmed every day after school when, when a child has to sit down and do homework.
0: Right. And is it normally like outbursts that parents see or. Did they just get nervous and shut down? Like, what kinds of things do you hear very often as...
1: Really, it's sort of both. I mean, there's okay. there's some people, you know, kids, teens, where, you know, they sort of, they shut down and just, they just can't function because they're so anxious. There mm-hmm. are others where, you know, they either redirect that anger, that sort of that anxiety into something else, whether it's, I don't know, sort of going at it with a sibling or, right, um, you know, or sort of blowing up out of anger,
0: mm-hmm. which then
1: sort of reduces having to deal with the anxiety of the doing the homework.
0: Right, and do parents normally come in and say like like they're if they're noticing both those things in their child like get them tested for both the things at the same time or do they just say like I'm noticing my child's having a hard time doing X Y Z and then they are diagnosed with, diagnosed with both but parents might not have noticed.
1: Um, I mean, in general, when you do testing for, for ADHD, you really have to kind of look at everything mm-hmm. to the extent that you can. So, for example, anytime I'm doing tests for ADHD, you know, I'm automatically looking at is there anxiety, is there depression? Think, you know, if there's any other red flags that I would look at, you know, is there OCD, is there autism? Right. Because the hard part with kids is there's so much overlap. Because if yeah. you look at ADHD and anxiety, for example, you know, hard time focusing or concentrating, that fits both of them. Um, mm. You know, sh- shutting down when stuff's tough. That, it, that really is both of them. Right. Um, procrastination, both of them. Right. Um, and, you know, when people talk about executive functioning, you know, having a hard time with planning, organizing, getting started. Um, so a lot of times people kind of associate executive functioning as the same as ADHD. Okay. I mean, the symptoms itself can often be quite similar, but some... I mean, at least the way that I view ADHD, if someone has ADHD, at least in my opinion, I feel like by default they have executive function weaknesses. However, right. the key thing here is that a lot of people can have executive function weaknesses without having ADHD. Oh. Anxiety can cause weaknesses in executive functioning, depression, because if someone's really depressed, they're gonna have a hard time focusing. Right. You know, if they're really depressed, I mean their co- cognitive, you know, the processing speed and stuff maybe slowed down quite a bit that there's a lot of you know functional impact. But even other things, I mean OCD, for example, if you know someone you know has a hard time with, you know, if they're constantly ruminating about things, that's going to be distracting and have a hard time right. focusing. Right. If they're, you know, the obsessions and compulsions are taking up a lot of time to a day, that's going to impact their productivity with getting other stuff done they need to get done. Right. I mean it's sort of funny. Like I think at least from my opinion, I think almost all psychological disorders in some shape or form probably impact executive functioning. Right. I've often joked when I've done presentations, you know, find me a disorder that does not impact executive functioning at all, because the point is that I think it's such a vital skill, but I think almost anything can really impact it.
0: Yeah. Um. And do you do you think that parents bring their child in for that reason, and then they're surprised by other diagnoses coming through with ADHD, or that like the child maybe has no ADHD at all, and it is one of the other things that impacts. Um,
1: I think it depends. I mean, every situation is different. I mean, there's a lot of times where there's certainly a high comorbidity between ADHD, anxiety, or Mm -hmm. ADHD, learning disability. So, you know, I think a lot of times, like, you know, when a parent sort of looks back through kind of the history and looks at what's going on, you know, there's, often not super surprised but there's you know i think for some people there's certainly still stigmas attached to certain disorders Mm. and so i think for some parents it's especially if it's something that's completely unexpected like if i'm doing testing for let's say adhd and learning disability and it turns out you know i see autism or ocd or something else that's Mm -hmm. really yet to them out of left field that probably is gonna be quite jarring and that's why i'm very delicate when i you know do feedback sessions and handle it sort of you know it is sort of you know a to have a calm and sort of, you know, simple way as possible to navigate, because I think it's important not just to know what's going on, but to also look at when you give feedback, whether it's to the parents or to the child, you know, how to do it in a way that, you know, is really empowering to them. So mm-hmm. they come away from the evaluation feeling, I now have all this information on what, wh- what did I have trouble with? And here's what I can do to make it better.
0: Right. And often parents get told, like, especially with what we work with, we do reading. And so a lot of times parents are like, oh, if your child's like having a little bit of trouble, like like just wait or like, and other things like with speech, you know, they're like, my child's not speaking, should I wait? Do parents ever get told that with you? And do you try to, not by you, um, do you find that when parents come to you, they've been told, just wait, like, see if they'll like grow out of it?
1: Um. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I mean, I think there are a lot of people that I work with where, you know, they sort of waver for a while, you know, should I seek treatment? Should I seek testing? Mm-hmm. And this, this, you know, idea of, oh, you know, maybe I'll get better this year. Right. I think what's hard is, you know, it depends on the circumstances. I mean, there are times where sometimes you know people have issues one year based on teacher or some other thing, right. and you know you start a new school year and it gets better. But in a lot of cases, if it's unless it's something that really is set up in a way where there's likely to be a drastic change, most issues from the prior school year don't magically disappear when you start a new school year. Right. <laughs> I think contrary to what I think a lot of people would like to occur, have occur, that doesn't often happen. But I think also it's hard. I mean, obviously, as you know, you know people develop in terms of, you know, reading skills and things that, you know, at somewhat different rates. Yeah, I mean, again, I think there's a difference if we're talking about a kindergartner, or a first grader versus, you know, a third or fourth grader that, you know, there is some, and again, I think, you know, diagnosed, I mean, even with ADHD, I'm really not a big fan of doing testing for real little kids because I think there's, you know, especially in, you know, boys, there's, you know, a lot of kids that, you know, have a hard time sitting still and they're four or five and, you know, it doesn't automatically mean they have ADHD.
0: Right. I was going to ask, what is normally like the, um, youngest you see come in to the office.
1: Um I mean, I've certainly worked with four and five year olds before, right. but I would say probably, I don't know, maybe around seven or eight is probably the youngest that I most often see right that comes in. but again, it's hard because I think with the learning piece, I mean, I can do testing with a four or five year old or you know six or seven year old for, for to look for learning issues. but you know, in some ways you know, the reading and the writing skills are still developing. Yeah, and so I can have some sense of what their current skill level is, but doesn't. But to me, like if they're a little behind, doesn't. To me, it doesn't automatically mean they have a learning disability. It means that maybe you know there's a little bit takes taking them a little bit longer to get the basics down of, of how to read. Whereas you mm-hmm. know, and again, that's where I think sometimes you know even if there's not a formal learning disability, you know certainly there's difference between having learning disability and taking action to make it better. Because whether mm-hmm. there's a learning disability or not, if your chi- child's not reading in the way that you know, sort of you assume they should be, you know, that's where at least seeking out early intervention to figure out what can I do to make it better? Yes, And I guess that's where you guys come in.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It generally is where we come in. We we tell people to get tested as early as possible. It's just the easiest way to know um, if there is something going on, because you can generally tell that. Um, and then you can go from there, but you know, if you get tested and nothing there's, you don't see anything, you can go on about your merry way, but lot of times we do see kids wait until like later. Um but once you're in the middle school realm, it's hard to get caught up from you know having if you're in middle school and you have a third grade reading level, that's really difficult to um build back up. So it's easier just especially with reading for uh, getting the diagnosis as early as possible because then you can just you know improve the skills A little more on par with classmates so the kids don't feel as behind a lot of times kids with dyslexia are super super smart have very high iq so they feel you know stressed in the fact that they can't read and they feel like they're not smart which is not the case (laughs) um
1: Right. So it but, definitely impacts the emotional piece as well yeah. when someone's struggling with school. And so that's why I agree. I think getting the early intervention is really important. But also, like if a parent, I mean, one of the biggest pieces of advice I can really give to anyone, you know, parents out there they're listening is the idea that if you think your child might have a particular issue, at the very least, you know, contact a professional. And you know, talk to them. Even if yep. like they're definitely parents I talk to when you know when they contact me about testing, you know, I ask them, I don't just say, oh, let's do testing. Right. I you know, ask them some questions, I get a feel for what's going on. And you know, in a lot, I mean a lot of cases I would say based on what they're saying, I think we should do testing. But there are definitely a fair amount of times where I may say, based on what you've just described, I think well, why don't we wait a few months, see see how the new school year goes, and then to reassess or like sometimes right. if kids have gone through a huge life change in the moment you know parents yeah. got divorced or some other thing that actually could really be impacting things emotionally it may not be the best time to do testing because you may not get as clear a picture of things right
0: yeah that is interesting i did i definitely didn't think about that as much um because generally like i said when we get we get people calling to do testing they're like i've noticed my kid can't read and it's like they've noticed it for a while it's less so um
1: right and again like i also think portion. that well obviously there could be an emotional piece to some degree to reading i, I think it's more of a functional aspect. Right. you know it's more i think adhd and behavior certainly i think it have more of a psychological component to it in some ways right. than trouble reading it certainly could have some but again right. it's you also want to look at things cooler like so for example when i do testing for you know for learning learners and reading one of the things i also look at to extent i'm able to is vision Oh, because there are yeah. a lot of times I'm referring out to you know optometrists because there are times where even if it's not the primary issue, you know issues with vision tracking can sometimes mm-hmm. really imp- obviously, you know, impact reading a lot, you know, and right. writing and other things too.
0: Yeah, and since we do speech, um, sometimes we do hearing testing too because parents think that like their kid maybe just like isn't responding to things and they're confused by that, and you're like, okay, well, can they hear you? <laughs> Like we got to start there. Right.
1: And also the same idea that even if a kid can, can technically hear, how's our auditory processing? Because there's right. some kids that, you know, may do okay and you know, super basic hearing test, mm-hmm. but when you have to actually, you know, listen to things that are you know close by or far away or block out background noise, some kids have a much harder time with that. Right.
0: Yeah. Well, so that's I mean, that's why we Nate, we started this podcast, because it's you know, treating the whole child like you said earlier, you got to look at everything, otherwise you don't always get the full picture. And one, especially like you said, with executive functioning a lot of, you know, different psychological things can impact the executive function. So that's, I mean, this is great. We're talking about this. Um, so once kids get a diagnosis from you, let's say you've got a kiddo that gets ang- um, anxiety and ADHD. What do um, parents normally do for therapy with you?
1: Sure. Um I mean so certainly there's again it depends on it's not one size fits all so it depends what are the what are the actual issues at that point that they're seeing so some of it would be you know doing therapy to address the the emotional impact so self-esteem okay. things like that yeah. you know then working a lot on practical strategies so for example with working on the hyperactivity you know one of my sort of favorite things I like to focus on is this idea of harnessing fidgeting to improve focus so the idea is if a child is basically bouncing their leg or fiddling with things um, you know, clearly they need that ex- excess movement and that's sen- that sensory stimulation. But if you right. can basically harness it in a controlled way, so for example, with doing homework, um, one of my favorite things to recommend for, for kids is to use like a desk bike or elliptical that they oh. can pedal on while they're doing homework. I mean, yeah. not for, you know, a high intense workout, but the right. idea is that if they're going to shake their legs anyway, by, you know, pedaling lightly while they're working, what it does is it tricks the mind into thinking they're more interested in something than they are. And oh. so it essentially replaces that what otherwise would be kind of aimless movements that could be distracting and, and sort of channels it, so allows them to be more engaged and focused on whatever the task is at hand. But right. the idea behind it is it has to be mindless. So for example, um, you know, if anyone out here remembers fidget spinners, yes. you know, I think they were majorly mismarketed. I think a, a sign that they were on their way out was I think a couple of years ago, I'd seen, I think them on the clearance rack and I think Bed, Bath & Beyond, which I guess is, Aww. I think it's gone out of business since. So I guess it's also dated, but, <laughs> you know, but but the, but the idea is that you have to be able to, to do it mindlessly because if you have to look at it while you're while you're doing it it's even if you're even if your you know auditory attention is fine you're listening you're missing all the visual cues so the idea is anything they're using as a fidget tool or device even if it's on your hand you have to be able to do without looking at it really thinking about it
0: right um one thing that i think is really interesting i'm a knitter and i feel like i've seen a lot of people knit in like classes um because they're like if I can do something with my hands, then I can focus better. Has anyone ever been like, I would love to knit?
1: <laughs> um, I mean, probably. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know as many kids that knit. And while well, I certainly work with, you know, boys and girls, I definitely end up seeing more boys than girls. Okay. Just the way it works out. But um, I've definitely people able to express interest in knitting. It's not as common as, as you know, other things, but like, or, right. you know, doing stuff with GIMP or, yeah, th- things along those lines. You know, right. or, and again, it depends how complex of a stitch it is in terms of how much they have to think about it. Right. Yeah. Um, but knitting, I think sort of... The idea behind that, though, is because you need your hands, it depends what you're doing. So yeah. if you're sitting reading a book and you can have the book propped up and you don't need your hands or anything, something like knitting could work extremely well. Yeah. When you're doing something that involves your hands, and obviously with a computer, most times you need hands, both hands to type, mm-hmm. that's where doing some of your feet sort of can often be more helpful.
0: Yeah. And has there been... um do people have like little uh like walking pads? Have you noticed that um being a, another popular
1: one? Um I don't know that I've seen kids that I've worked with use the walking pad. I okay. think the idea is I think the idea is great. It's the similar, same idea of the desk bike or elliptical. Right. Um this is you know, something you just stick under the desk and, and can do it. Right. I think it's hard. I think there's some people that can or you know, kids that can focus really well doing something that's sort of mindless, but others I've noticed sometimes have a hard time with the standing piece. Oh, so that's, yeah, that's where, you know, another recommendation would be kind of like a standing desk and a balance board. Right. But for some people, the idea of having to stand up while they're working is sort of hard and creates a harder time focusing. So that's where something they can sit while, and basically it's the only difference is they're moving their legs as opposed to have to stand. But again, right. everyone's different. Yeah. I mean, using like a yoga ball chair or wobble chair, you right. know, or other good things, because those sort of require at least a little bit of movement to hold yourself still. Right. But again, that's where, because everyone's different you know, trying out a couple of these things, seeing what works, you know, for your child, but I also think getting their buy-in. So instead of just going out and buying all this stuff to say, you know, let's think through together, how could we, how can we make things better? So we've identified the problem is that you have a hard time seeing someone you're doing homework. Right. So if we, do you have, you know, to ask them first, do they have any ideas on what they could do to make it better? And then, you know, if needed, then offer, you know, I've seen this desk bike you could use where we you stick it on a desk and you pedal, you know, while you're doing homework. Do you think this might be something worth trying? Yeah. And then this way, by a a collaborative approach, I found a lot of times you know you get more buy-in yeah. from kids. And so it becomes easier for them to try to use this stuff. Plus, also right. for a lot of kids, if they feel like it's very forced on them, they're going to push back, even if it's a great idea.
0: Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and do you notice that those things also help with the anxiety portion? Or is there other are there other tools that help with anxiety in the ADHD?
1: Um, so it depends. I think for some, for some people, the, the physical piece does really help with the anxiety also, because, you know, the other thing too, is, you know, going back to this idea how there can be a lot of overlap between ADHD and anxiety. When someone's really anxious, they can actually fidget because they're anxious. It's not always right. because of hyperactivity because of ADHD. Right. So sometimes the physical movement can be really helpful, you know, for the anxiety itself. Other times it's also just the, the act of like, it's one, one other thing that it, it creates something else to take, you know, even unconsciously take their mind off of the anxiety to then make it easier to get started or to, you know, tolerate those feelings. I mean, other strategies for the anxiety, certainly there are breathing techniques you can do because if you think about what, the phys- what happens when someone gets anxious, again, there can be differences. But, you know, some people, maybe their heart starts racing or they may start, you know, breathing really heavily or they may feel very tense. So being able to, you know, kind of slow, you know, take, take control of the breathing to be able to bring your body back to homeostasis can sometimes be really helpful in, you know, physiologically reducing the, the physical, the physical impact of the stress of this anxiety. Right. And again, these are things that are, you know, best sort of done, you know, worked with the mental health professional on because you want to make sure you're doing stuff in a, in a way that's safe and, and healthy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, obviously, you can take a few deep breaths in and out. But I think, you know, for anything more advanced, I think it's definitely best to work with someone directly on it. So you know you're doing it safely and also in a way that would would ideally work well.
0: Right. Yeah. And do you often have like tips or anything that you give to parents or teachers um, so that they can better manage their ADHD and anxiety?
1: Yeah, I mean, in general, my approach is to try to help kids to do as much as they can themselves, mm-hmm. just because the more you, they can sort of be self-reliant, for right reasons, I think that's better. But obviously, depending on the age and presenting issues, they certainly need at least some, if not a lot of support by you know adults. Right. And so the idea would be, for example, in school to figure out, based on the particular class, you know, when might be a good time for a break? Because mm-hmm. if you recognize that you know, X number of minutes approximately into the class period, a child, you know, is having a hard time focusing and really needs a break or needs to get up. Setting it up where, you know, if there's a certain structure of the class where they could, you know, take a quick break, let's say to get a drink of water or something, where yeah. they're not going to miss instructional time or other stuff or minimize that, that would be best. So, right. you know, making a plan for each class to get an extra break if needed, um, to be able to sometimes move to a different part of the room to do work. Um, you know, that those are, you know, a couple a couple of strategies that are, that are often helpful. Right. You know, a lot of it's figuring out like what are the, the issues that present in that class. Because sometimes, you know, what may occur in a reading class may be very different than what occurs in math or science. Oh, yeah. In terms of what the needs are, and so not everything is universal. I mean, it's sort of like you know, with a five hundred four plan or IP it's yeah. great to have those accommodations in there. But sometimes, if they're so general, unless you actually tailor them even informally to meet the needs of each class, sometimes they really they they certain ones don't always end up being as helpful unless they're actually right. matched up. Like say, like one of the things that in some cases I've seen you know, a a reduced workload accommodation, which again, that's not as common, but the hard part is it really depends on the class. Like for example, in a math class, I've seen that where sometimes it involves, you know, do, you know, doing all the odd number problems or less math problems, but in other Mm -hmm. classes, it's often much harder to determine what does that actually look like? And then half the time stuff's not implemented because no no one's really sure how to actually implement it unless Mm -hmm. there's an actual discussion with the teacher about it. (laughs)
0: Yeah. And that's tough. Um, and What, um, do you have any like quick tips that you would give a parent to help their kid maybe like do homework or something at the end of the day? That's not, because I'm sure a lot of times parents are like, you can do it like, and they try to give encouragement in a way that maybe isn't the best for their kiddo because it's what they think would be helpful. Um, So what do you normally say to them?
1: Sure. I mean, so I think taking a step back and kind of looking at, first of all, having a separate team that they can follow that they're willing to sort of set up and use can be really yeah. helpful. So having, you know, a plan, you know, for based on after school activities when are they going to do homework? Are they going to come home and do it before they go out for an activity? Do they do it when they get home? But having a clear sense for each day of the week based on their schedule of when they're going to start homework would be good. Okay. Having a set space that they use ideally just for homework would be good. Yeah. Because, you know, if they do homework in the same place or watching TV or doing other stuff or playing the computer, it's it's gonna be hard to train them to just do work in that area. Right. So I think that's sort of a good starting point. And then from there, figuring out, you know, something along the lines of, you know, if they need help, you know, writing out a simple list of what assignments are going to do. Like what I find helpful is for kids to, whether they do it through an online portal or, you know, or paper planner, basically is to look essentially in some shape or form, have the assignments listed out that they're going to work on that day and estimate the completion times. Because what this does is they can tally that up and it gives them a sense of, oh, I need to focus for approximately one hour today. Okay. And it may not be exact, but right. it basically it takes away that idea of the unknown. Because sometimes the idea of, oh, homework's going to take me forever can be a huge you know, deterrent to starting. But right. knowing that there's an actual time attached to it can, can sometimes make it easier to get started. Plus, also, if you have a child who's procrastinating a lot, if they have some sense how long the work's going to take, there's less likelihood they're going to leave it and then suddenly run short on time to finish it. Right. Especially if there's some sort of buffer beyond the actual time before they have to go to bed.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think... That was my last question for you. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Do you have anything you want to mention before we wrap up here?
1: Sure. Um, I guess one thing to mention in terms of online resources. So, um, Chad um, is you know is a really great resource for everything ADHD. Um, okay. They have, you know, I mean, hundreds of ar- thousands or actually more than that of articles online. They have various toolboxes based on the presenting issue around ADHD. And so you can download, you know, they podcasts, all sorts of stuff. So it's a really great resource for um, pulling out, you know, everything you can about ADHD if you need sort of a good online resource for stuff. Okay,
0: that's awesome. I don't think I've I've heard of that. You said it's called CHAD?
1: Yeah, it's org. Okay. Yeah, it's a Perfect. national nonprofit that's really focused on helping people with ADHD.
0: Wow. Okay. I'll definitely put that in the show notes. I think that would be awesome for parents to be able to um, use. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to think of anything else. I think that was it. Well, this was wonderful. Thank you so much for being here and chatting with us about this. Like I said, I think it's great for the start of the school year. Um, Parents that I'm sure are like, like you said, where they wait for the school year to start and like maybe something will change next school year. This will probably be at the perfect time for people to be like, you know what? Nothing did change. Um, and hopefully they'll get this lesson and and see what steps they need to do moving forward. So thank you so much for being here.
1: you hey, welcome. Thanks a lot for having me.
0: Yeah, of course. Thank you so much to the audience for listening. Make sure to subscribe and leave us a little rating and review. It helps other folks find the podcast and we'll chat with you next time.